27 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, and not by those jerks at Naked Wines. If you're sick of listening to those ads, you're not going to hear them here. I usually say we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, but our two participants today have reminded me that we're a lawyer talking about technology <laughs> and a bunch of people who know more about it than the lawyers do talking about it. So I will disclaim, nonetheless, the fact that our institutions don't endorse our views, our Friends, clients, family, pets don't endorse those views either. Joining me on the News Roundup are Dave Itell, who's a cybersecurity specialist and policy partner at Cordyceps Systems, and Nick Weaver at Berkeley and the chief mad scientist of scary technologies. I'm Stuart Baker, the only lawyer formerly with NSA and DHS and the host upholder of all things legal on today's program. So let's jump into this week in decoupling because we're now seeing stories that suggest that not satisfied with creating a massive disruption in the global chip market. The administration is thinking about doing something similar to try to cut off Chinese access to quantum computing and AI advances in the West. Whether that'll work as well is an open question, but it certainly is, if not a doubling down, it's a considerable addition to the hostilities. Nick, what did the administration try to do and is it going to work? It's in many ways, a continuation of the great decoupling that they started with with the notice on the chip fabrication tech. In some ways, it's a little bit up in the air what this means. I think Dave and I both agree that quantum computing may not really even matter. It's kind of still too much R&D. For AI, it's mostly going to be high-end chips for machine learning purposes. And Do you need uh, high-end chips for machine learning purposes? Yes and no. So the thing is, is in the end, machine learning is basically collect a whole bunch of labeled data and then throw dense matrix multiply at the problem. And dense matrix multiply, the better the chips, the faster you can do that. So it really does make a difference. The question is, is what's actually going to be on the list of allowed or not allowed? Like, will current gen graphics cards be allowed? Right. Because current gen graphics cards happen to be really good at the dense matrix multiply. They're also really good at playing my video game. Right. And there are an awful lot of people playing games in China. And the other thing is NVIDIA is really seeing a huge sales decrease because a huge amount of their sales was going into the Ethereum cryptocurrency miner market. And that just went poof a few weeks ago, much to my delight. But this means there's going to be a lot of pain associated with this for companies who are already suffering from the chips effort. And at some point, some of them are going to ask the question, would I be better off? And I think with gaming chips, this may be, we may be there where they say, would I be better off just saying, okay, fine, I'm just going to sell to China and I'm not going to sell to anybody else. Well, Stuart, you said just to drill into, there's two things there. First of all, they may not be able to sell into China, right? So NVIDIA and some of the other big players, like that's not an option for them. That doesn't mean that the Chinese don't have their own ability to produce GPUs, which they do. But to do that, you would have to get them fabricated at TSMC, and TSMC isn't allowed to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so this is a pretty multi-layer strategy, and maybe China isn't the 
you know, next largest gaming market if they can't get graphics cards anymore. So that's one side of the story. But I think you spoke to something else, which is that, yes, it's extremely painful for a lot of U.S. companies, not just the ones developing the silicon, but a whole range of parts of our industry that are going to be taking cuts on their bottom line. And you said something that I thought was very prescient, perhaps, in your last podcast, and it was that strategy is often about making very public, very hard choices and communicating those choices to the rest of the country and the rest of your industry. And that's what we're seeing here, right? So like one of the great things about this particular effort is that it's they're not pretending it's a special military operation and then entering a war, right? Like they understand how large this effort really is and how painful it's going to be. And I think that's something that, you know, I guess we can at least walk into it with our eyes open. Do you think, but, they, they, you you think know, they've done enough to persuade body politic, that this is a this is something where sacrifices are going to have to be made and, and that the companies that are feeling the pain instead of lobbying to end the pain should be sucking it up? Because I'm not sure I'm hearing that from the administration. You, you know what? You're totally right. And like communication is not any administration's strong point because a lot of them come from the perspective that like we do what we do and then you follow us. You do hear that BIS is reaching out and trying to you know, talk to industry in general. Jake Sullivan obviously has been, you know, putting these things together and doing a lot of public outreach. I don't know about the body politic in general. The body politics probably concerned more about, you know, the latest football scores. But like, like there's definitely, there has been some effort. I think you're not wrong that like, this is not a strong point for the US government in general. So if they want to push it further, it would help to have a more coherent overall strategy communicated. Some of that, obviously, these things get released, as you noted on, I think, two podcasts ago, very suddenly, right? right? Like the goal is to like, you almost have to surprise your adversary with a lot of these export controls so they don't prepare ahead of time. And I think that's one of the one of the things that's happening. And maybe that makes it harder to communicate. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting here that's worth watching is Europe has gone along, and when I say Europe, I mean the Dutch, because they have a lot to say about the future of ASML, which is by far the best technology for making the most advanced chips. Europe has said, yes, we agree that you should cut off the ability to build those very advanced chips, cutting off the use of the machines for those purposes. But we don't agree that you should roll back the use of those machines for older generations that are less sophisticated, even though that's clearly where the administration is going. And that seems to be why we don't have a multilateral set of sanctions. The European Union in particular has ridden to the rescue of ASML and the Dutch to say, we don't think you should go back and try to deal with those older generations. I mean, I don't necessarily speak for ASML, but you can see the strategy as it goes forward is going to be everything. Yeah. And I think they are getting that message, right? Like, I don't think they're confused about it, at least the direction. And that is a step up for a lot of these policies. Like, it is not confusing to either the Chinese or the Europeans, or let's be honest, to to the Koreans and the Japanese, who are huge players in this space. Yes. So one of the big companies affected by this is a Chinese memory producer, the Yangtze Memory Technologies Corp. And it's interesting because if you dig a little deeper into the Yangtze Memory Technologies Corp technology, there's an article out in the New York Times from 2018, which has a really cool quote. And it's, 
you know, that the, the, their the YMTC memory chip is virtually identical to Samsung's, which makes it pretty clear that they're copying. And one of the things you see here is like, if the Chinese have spent the last two decades stealing American technology and Korean technology and Japanese technology and then copying it to build these semiconductors, there, there's sort of an almost a moral imperative to, to all of a sudden turn them all off at once, mm-hmm. right? So if you've stolen a bunch of stuff, we've decided that's not okay, you thought we didn't care, it turns out we did, and now it's all gone. And I think it's such big news, it's almost, there's no surprise that you've talked about it three podcasts in a row. Yeah, you know, I hate to say it, but we'll come back to it sometime in the next month for sure, because we keep discovering new things about what decoupling means. And it means, for example, that Apple had to make the decision not to use those YMTC memory chips in their phones. And they thought for a while they had a perfect compromise of saying, well, we'll only use them in chips that are going to Chinese customers. And that compromise has just gone up in smoke. Yes. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that. This is one of those things that's continuing to roll out. Right. Okay. So it'll be this year in decoupling before we know it. There's a national security cyber law angle to the Elon Musk Twitter drama. I suspect a short-lived national security law angle. Uh, Dave, can you introduce this topic? Well, an article came out in Reuters and, of course, in a few other places where they talk about how Musk's new Twitter funding could draw TikTok-like U.S. scrutiny. And, you know, the TikTok situation is, of course, that uh, under the Trump administration, we started, I say we, the Trump administration, started to do an analysis of expanding what hit the national security buttons to include sections of U.S. data, right? So we saw TikTok data, but also like Grindr data, right? Like a lot of other things were forced to divest. So there's similar considerations here only because the funding for Musk's new takeover is coming from a lot of different places, one of which, one of the, a larger one is, of course, the, a Saudi prince. Yeah, I do a fair amount of CFIUS in my private practice. I, I suspect actually that Musk could turn this into an engine for delay, but in the end, it, it's not going to be an appropriate CFIUS matter. The uh, amount of foreign ownership here, even if you add in the Saudis and the Qataris, is probably going to be under 10%. There's no indication that they're going to get any board seat or special insight into the data that, that Twitter has. And so it would be a very thin to non-existent CFIUS case. At the same time, you know, once this story has appeared in the press, if you were being aggressive and you were Musk's lawyer, you might say, well, why don't we just find out whether there's a problem by filing and asking whether there's a problem. But that means that we have to go through a process and the process could take months before we get an answer. And I'm sorry, Judge, you want to go faster than that, but this is national security and you should step back. Except that that doesn't actually get Musk out of the problem because he personally agreed to specific performance. So Judge in Delaware's response is, oh, there's concern with this part of your funding? Okay, we'll just take your your Tesla stock and sell it to make up for that difference. So maybe. I do think there is an argument that says if there's a problem with the structure of your deal, restructure your deal. And that doesn't mean you aren't buying Twitter. You just have to do it without Saudi money. And he may have decided that that's you know, that's where this ends up and it isn't worth pursuing because I haven't, apart from a random tweet, which, you know, with Musk, you can't 
take too seriously. He hasn't indicated much interest in this. And so my guess is that on Friday, the deal closes or Thursday, whatever it is. And this fierce issue probably goes away. And then he fires, what, 75% of the of the company? Now, that's actually not completely a surprise since the current management was planning to fire 25%, but it is a much bigger cut. And Nick, do you think that, that that's really what we're going to see? Yes, because the thing is, what has happened is Elon Musk thought he would be silly and offered 54.20 a share. Tesla, or Twitter's board called his bluff and goes, okay, if you're serious, here's this contract with specific performance. No, uh, no basically no outs. And Musk being a delusional egomaniac and walking Dunning-Kruger syndrome said, sure, I'm signing on the bottom line. And now basically he's stuck. He's got basically three things planned for Twitter. One, turn it into Musk-chan, where it is much lighter on the, the moderation. And two, he'll probably get rid of anybody who picks on him for being Pony Stark. So, so you, you I'll may be, be on, the, on the way out. Yep. Oh, I'm assuming I'm going to be gone. I'll be much more productive afterwards. And C, basically grossly cutting cost because there's really no opportunity to increase the revenue much, especially in the Musk-Chan model. But there is a opportunity to really reduce headcount, which is your biggest cost. But there's other things that'll happen too. First of all, Musk is an awful boss. So a lot of the best are just going to want to walk anyway. And also, he can't pay as well as Twitter could, because Twitter, when it was a public company, did the game of a lot of the pay was newly issued stock, diluting the stockholders to pay the employees more, and he can't do that. So there's going to be a huge exodus of personnel. Basically, everybody's going to go, when do my golden handcuffs come off? And gonna leave. So maybe he and should, Musk he, is going to be fine with that. He should just bring back the fail whale because the, the Twitter will go down more than it has in the last ten years. You, you could be right. There's a lot of fail in a big social platform. Lots of people have tried to replace Twitter and failed. And so he may be able to hang on to the audience, notwithstanding all the fuss. But it will be it'll be fascinating to watch. He he may be a tough guy to work for, but he has made successful companies out of at least two of the things that he's tried to to run. Well, I'd observed that Tesla nearly failed except for his grifting abilities on Wall Street. And SpaceX, it's so much of SpaceX success has been him staying out of the way. And I'd personally worry about Starlink ending up tanking the company. Also, on the national security issues with with good old apartheid Lex Luthor there, it isn't just Twitter and ownership with Saudi interests, etc. It's his obsequiousness to the Chinese government yeah. and also his back channels to Putin that only a real Vlatnik or somebody parroting Putin's talking points is concerned about the water supply to Russian occupied Crimea. And then he had the gall to try to extort the DOD on Starlink for 20 times the market rate. Now, a little bit of war profiteering is tolerated in the US, but 20x markup is just kind of like, 
dude, get a clue. So that's that explains why there was kind of grumpy talk about Cepheus, but I think that grumpy talk will not eventuate in anything and it will be you know we'll all get to see it play out in real time just as we got to see you know trump's demons on display we'll get to see elon musk's demons on display so just people who want to watch that psychodrama will account for a 20 percent increase in twitter readership so maybe that will be enough to help them succeed dave i want to talk a little bit about a the ProPublica article that came out last week about, it's actually an excerpt from a book, about the FBI's early steps in fighting cybercrime and how they went mostly wrong is how I read this. I thought it was actually a, you know, pretty thoughtful and not particularly ideological piece. I would, I would say it's not at all ideological. I, 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 fair, I, exactly. I expect more ideology from ProPublica than I got. Okay. Yeah. I think ProPublica is great. I think they do great work. But, you know, as you mentioned, this honestly, it's not a ProPublica piece. It is just purely an excerpt out of a book that comes out tomorrow by Renee Dudley and Daniel Goldman called The Ransomware Hunting Team, A Band of Misfits, Improbable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime, which I think is not... Not a great title, but the article itself starts out strong. And admittedly, if you read through the whole article, you'll be left wanting more. Right. So just to give a quick little summary, they start out by talking in 2015, which to me feels like yesterday. And they're talking about how the FBI was facing just resignation after resignation out of its cyber division. And then Director James Comey ended up getting an email directly from Andre McGregor, who was a special agent at the time in the cyber division, where Andre suggested ways to improve the cyber division, which is Andre's way of saying he flamed the director of the FBI, (laughs) right? So, and honestly, that part really spoke to me because I literally did the exact same thing to Dernsa back in 2000. Hence hence, hence your successful entry into the uh, sphere of private employment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not totally wrong. You're not totally wrong. Uh, You know what? 21-year-old hackers are tough to manage for anybody. But it's interesting. There's a few things about that, which is that the NSA went through this whole thing like in 2000, and it took 15 years for the FBI to start going through the exact same story, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, some of the things they were talking about were like the cyber agents were sort of derisively called the geek squad. And so they weren't respected, according to the article. And then ransomware was not a priority. And then the FBI compiled a best practices document, which is like the bureaucratic way of when a Southerner tells you to bless your heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's your best practices document now. Leave me alone, kid. (laughs) Right? So I just, look, the article is great. Highly recommend reading it. It does speak to some inbuilt cultural issues at the FBI that we have not gotten over to this day. Right? So I think that is the real warning signal from the book. It shouldn't be read as a book about the past. It should be read as a book about the present and why we face the kind of struggles we face. Why weren't we on top of ransomware ahead of time? Why does the FBI sometimes pull one way and everybody else pull the other way, and specifically with cryptography, right? So every time someone quits the FBI directorship, they all of a sudden have an about face on key escrow. And (laughs) it's sort of, it's so embarrassing. And anyway, so I think, look, the book, I didn't even know it was coming out. I think it sounds like a a worthwhile read. The article itself is a worthwhile read. 
And if, if you take anything away from it, it's that sometimes sending an email to uh, you know your boss's 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 boss can be a worthwhile endeavor because it gets you a book yeah. deal. Yeah, I I I I thought this was a, a good article too, and it sounded like the FBI. I have known for years. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and look, their, their problem is their great strength. Somebody was just talking to me about a, a bombing years ago in which uh, somebody who was a part of, the, of a Puerto Rican liberation front uh, got into a defense contractor's offices by submitting a fake application for a job there and looking really good, got an interview, left the bomb, left the premises, then the bomb went off. And of course, it was completely fake. Everything in it was fake. And the FBI, when they were investigating this, just collected every application for a job that was made in the in a one-month period and put 20 agents calling up everybody, checking all the credentials, checking all the data, and until they found this fake one and said, oh, maybe there's a problem here. And they, you know, since it was an application, they actually could take the fingerprints off it and start tracking this woman down. Uh, (laughs) But that is, you know, what the Bureau does more than anything is they have immense deployable resources for the right case. And the presumption is all of our people can do anything an FBI agent is asked to do. But that is not going to succeed with cyber crime. You need as many people who are really deep into this as you can get, and you need them working this full time. And you can't just say, well, those guys also should be able to do a bank robbery or a kidnapping if necessary, because they're just not going to have the same skills. And that really grinds against the culture of the agency, and it makes it hard. They desperately want to be the principal player on cybersecurity, and they have they have succeeded through aggressive energy in establishing a big role for themselves. And for a while, it was the dominant role. They don't have that anymore because they can't easily sustain it because of these problems with having the attention span from geeks that they really need if they're going to play in that. And you know, the reason they were able to succeed so well is that CISA and DHS started from nothing and it took them 10 years to to get halfway good at this now they are and i think the fbi is going to be suffering from the comparison for the next 10 one other minor problem is that i don't think the fbi is good at not taking credit (laughs) and meaning they are very good at taking credit for things yes and One of the things on a lot of the computer stuff is it is fragile. You boast about what you did too much and it ceases work. Yeah. No, I I, I think they have, they really do face some tough choices ahead on how they're going to play a role in cybercrime enforcement and cybersecurity. And I'm just not, I just don't think it's going to work well for them. Uh, they'll play a role as a law enforcement, but law enforcement is not working out as a an answer to the problem of most cybercrime. Well, I, I think, I mean, they have so many issues culturally. Mm-hmm. Like you, we could do an entire podcast on the FBI's issues culturally, but it would feel like ragging on right. them. But it, it is true that they this is a key strategic weakness that they have, reputationally, hiring, you know. Yep you know, actually getting the mission done. 
And it's going to require some dedicated problem solving at the upper layers of the administration to try to fix these kinds of issues. And right. I don't know who's going to do it. I, th- I think the, really the, I think DHS ends up with the dominant role here, and the FBI is. It's probably going to have to become more like NSA in the sense that they have people who just do this, do nothing but this. They, but I think that will always be a disfavored approach at the bureau. They just won't like it, and therefore they'll end up having to provide law enforcement cover for what are essentially NSA exploits or CISA regulatory initiatives. I think you're exactly right as a prediction of what's going to happen, as opposed to an optimistic view of what should happen. Yeah, they, they, they make a big point out of how the Dutch have managed to do this by pairing up one geek and one cop on teams to do this and treating the geek as a full team member, but I just think that's going to be really hard. For them. Yeah, and their problems aren't just internal, they're external. It's how they view the whole community has to change. Right. And until that changes, it's not going to help. Yeah. That's the reality. Well, they, there, there, is, know, like, there, there is the, the, the famous saying about the Bureau that they really only recognize two kinds of people. There's uh, inside the agency, it's agents and furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Although, in their defense, I think that I think they're actually doing better than they let on in some areas. Yeah, they have some terrific people. They have some great people. It's just, and they've accomplished amazing things. I just don't. I okay. Tell us what you think they've done particularly well. I thought the removal of Trojans was extremely forward-looking. So let's just start there. But they're also very capable of using capabilities to, you know perform complicated operations in general. And they've got a long history of doing this. So they have capabilities. And the thing is, does just having capabilities mean you can meet the mission that's given to you? Because the mission, especially the cyber part of the mission, has grown. It's humongous now. And removing Trojans from 100 boxes is not the end of the mission. That's the beginning of the cyber mission that they have to grow into. So dealing with a small cup. Yeah, I do think they've come a long way. I just think that, like, without strategic change, it's going to be hard for them to fit the shoes they need to really fit, if that makes any sense. Yep. All right. Cybersecurity labels. Dave, the White Look, House is into that. I I know. And, and it sounds great. It's like Energy Star and the Underwriters Lab, but it's gotten a fair amount of skepticism, and I take it you're one of the skeptics. I think I am one of the skeptics because I found the idea really funny when I first heard it. And I thought it was like, maybe someone was making a joke. And then it turned out it was real. So then I had to like dig into it. And and it's still in the early days, right? So I think a lot of the things you're seeing right now, you know, in terms of cyber policy are sort of like, we're going to feel it out a little bit. It would be nice if someone would improve the cybersecurity market. There's an easier lever for a lot of this, which is you can simply remove the copyright protection that prevents people from publishing security weaknesses and security sort of uh, metrics on devices and software, right? So you could easily just say your EULA is no longer allowed to prevent people from sharing what they know, right? right? That's, that would be a simple transparency fix for a lot of the issues that they're trying to fix with sort of at the behest, sort of in cooperation with industry, right? So anytime you're inviting in like a bunch of large industry vendors to come help you with your industry labeling, you're sort of, it's almost like predetermined regulatory capture. Oh, yes. It's sort of where we're at. It's 
defining your public partnership, public-private partnership, as captured by somewhere between fifty and eighty percent of the market. The top, the top performers get to say there are some competitors we don't want to have、uh, anymore. Exactly, and I think that's you know it, this is one of those policies where if I had to just predict the future with my magic eight ball, I'd say it's going to end up nowhere, right? Because Because the White House is going to realize eventually, like, okay, this was not a great idea, and it was a lot of work. And so, let me push you on that because I it, okay. It, so, th- one of the ideas here is you should be able to update the software on the devices you sell, and you shouldn't have default passwords built in to them.、Uh, they should be, you know, something that people are actually asked to think about at the start. Now, those are two. Pretty obvious security measures. You know, they're they're not going to change、sure. the world, but nobody's doing it now. So why not say if you want to get a label that says your security is pretty good, you have to do those things. And you know what? Like that may be the limit of the value. And I don't think that. I think it's weird because they already, I thought, wrote that the federal government would not be purchasing IoT devices that didn't meet some of these basic requirements. I think that's right. But 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 of course, and that's so, you know the the IoT market doesn't care what the federal government's buying. That's very interesting, though, right? Like if you think about it that way, if the IoT industry does not care what the federal government is buying or is not buying, if they're just not willing to go through that extra effort because their margin is so small, then this also seems like it might fail on the same in the same area, right? They might say the consumer doesn't really care about what has the gold star label versus what doesn't. We're going to invent our own gold star label. Everyone can have their own gold star label. It's fine, whatever, right? So I don't see the leverage, and I don't see the value, right? I I, I, I don't know. Okay, I'm not as I, optimistic. Yep. I'm more optimistic because so much of the stuff is a lemons market where consumers just have no way of knowing what is good and what is bad. Hell, as a professional, I can't、right. for half the stuff I'm supposed to buy, and so for the basics of like. Does it auto update? Does it not have a universal default password? That sort of thing, that you can address by labeling. And a standard label is the kind of thing that you don't have to worry as much about the fakery on, because there are protections that keep you from doing fake nutritional labels and stuff like that. So it may make a difference. I don't think it'll make a huge difference, but. We need to do something to address the lemons market in devices. Yeah, one of the problems that I think I'm hearing is that there may need to be updates to the standards as cybersecurity standards evolve, and people are worrying. Well, if I put a label on that says this is okay, and a year later the standards have changed, but the label hasn't, if people are going to be back buying lemons without knowing the status of the. Product they're buying, and so they're talking about. Well, should we instead of a label put some kind of a barcode that would allow people to check to see what the, the security status of that product is? Boy, that just sounds like nobody's going to do that. You know, you're buying a five dollar product, and you're going to get out your smartphone and check for the label. I doubt that works. Also, the thing is, is you can tweak the label with the standards upgrade. So you've got、yeah. the first one is bronze standard.、Right. Then you, two years later, you come out with the silver standard. Two years later, you come out with the gold standard. Two years later, you come out with the platinum. Then the iridium. Then the uranium. Then the unobtainium. And that handles the issue of the evolving spec.、Yeah. Okay. 
last, I'm not even sure I'll call this a serious story, Yay or Kanye West is going to buy Parler. And Nick, I feel bad covering this story because I don't think this is going to well, end well for anybody. And Parler is, you know, it's got what, 60,000 regular users? It's just not a very big platform. And you kind of wonder why he's doing this and whether he's going to lose his shirt doing it. Well, Yi right now is suffering a clear mental health crisis, as well as being a complete mask-off anti-Semite, doing a real good job of revealing other a-holes like, oh, Pony Stark, as also being anti-Semite adjacent in the process. This is really a story about manipulating a sick man mostly by Candace Owens, that she's the wife of the CEO of Parler. And so they are going to make out. Conservative influencer in her own right. Yes, the conservative grift. It's quite profitable. And so that's what this story really is. Yi is being taken to the cleaners by Candace Owens and company to bail out a failing social network. We'll see, but he does bring a lot of star power to it, and people may tune in as they will with Twitter to see what the new owner has to say. But yeah, I, these Twitter competitors have just had a lot of trouble getting off the ground, and I don't think Parler is an exception to that. It's the classic case. Well, going going back to the Elon Musk strategy for Twitter, this is why I think he's going to crater Twitter, is the ones that have failed, the Twitter competitors are always... We are more free speech, a.k.a. we are more 4chan. And that's not actually what the majority want. It'd be interesting to see. I think it may just be the story of how hard it is to escape network effects. And so when we see, as we will, the six left-wing alternatives to Elon Musk's Twitter, it will be interesting to see whether they can make more of a success of being the alternative than the conservatives have. I'm guessing not, but we'll have to see. All right, quick updates and events. Texas has sued Google over its use of facial images. Texas has a law not unlike Illinois, but it has two differences. It's basically you must have consent for biometrics and the definition of biometrics kind of to a lot of people's surprise has include, included facial recognition. And in Illinois, both Google and Facebook were sued by plaintiff's lawyers, and they had to settle out $650 million for Facebook, $100 million for Google. The difference in Texas is only the attorney general brings those lawsuits, and he can charge, instead of Five hundred or a thousand dollars—I forget what it is—and he can charge twenty-five thousand dollars per violation, which means every time you used people's biometrics. So the the damages that he can seek are going to be in the hundreds of times the, the damages available in Illinois. So if they paid a hundred million dollars, if Google paid a hundred million dollars to get out of the lawsuit in Illinois. They are staring down the barrel of a much, much bigger bill from Texas. And this is part of Texas's view that the social media can't do anything right and should be made to pay and pay and pay. But they've got a 
pretty serious um, device, a weapon to, to use against Google and Facebook. So that's a space worth watching. Nick, this is a, also a quick one. The Wire is an Indian kind of ProPublica, basically, that wrote a bunch of stories accusing Meta or Facebook of a variety of wrongdoing. Meta, instead of kind of assuming a fetal position, fought back, and it looks to me from everything now as though Meta won that fight, that The Wire has pulled all of its stories and is doing a, an investigation of what happened. But, you know, you don't usually retract your stories if you're confident that your investigation is going to turn out vindicating you. So a little bit more background on the case. So basically, The Wire was alleging that Faceplant or Meta or whatever they're called was deliberately moderating in ways favoring certain basically, politically... Right? Yeah, BGP. And the... The initial article was received doubtfully. The follow-up article was, here's an email from the guy in charge saying, I want to know this, when the guy in charge's only email is, let's make a phone call. And then they doubled and tripled down, like uh, the email headers were weird, it was from Facebook domain, they had a video of a control panel that was clearly fake they had a video of validating the email dkim that was trivial to fake and they wouldn't provide that email to anybody else to independently validate and so the problem is they doubled and tripled down on the story when the tech people were going if this is real this is how you prove that it is real and they specifically refused not to um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very damaging for The Wire. The good news is I don't think that Facebook Meta is going to try to put a stake in their heart by suing them for uh, you know lying or libeling them just because that's too David and Goliath with them playing Bigfoot. Also, they don't need to because this has already so torpedoed The Wire's reputation overall because when you have a fabulous on staff, the first thing you have to do is address it directly, not double down and defend in ways that independent observers who are no friend of Facebook are going, hey, this stinks. Yep. So, and the last story I just wanted to flag for people is another story of companies firing back at press coverage that they think is unfair. This is TikTok. TikTok was accused by Forbes in a very general story that didn't have a lot of detail, which they said was because they were protecting their source. But basically, they said that TikTok's parent was using or planning to use TikTok's ability to find the location of its users to locate specific American citizens, which was a kind of weird framing, but I think the idea was there were some people they, whose location they wanted to identify. And TikTok said, that's not true. We can't track specific U.S. persons because we don't <laughs> use their, uh, their location for this purpose. Is all we could have gotten, I don't think, was cell tower segment, which I thought was kind of not exactly a, a persuasive rebuttal, but that's kind of where it stands. Uh, Nick, How do you say 702 in Cantonese? <laughs> yeah, it may be just 
TikTok would do. We're going to hear more on this because it's kind of an irresistible story. There's going to be congressional attention to this. They're probably going to get subpoenaed to ask what the story is here. So we will hear more. I just wanted to flag the fact that it happened and you know, exactly how it's going to be resolved is hanging out there. Neither Forbes nor TikTok has exactly given us a lot to work with here. All right, Dave, Nick, thank you for joining us. If you're in the audience and you want to send us comments, feedback, questions, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com will get our attention. But if you really want to get our attention, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will read the most entertainingly abusive reviews or the most entertainingly uh, praising reviews on the air. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 427 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thank you.